0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website.
1: Good evening, everyone. My name is Åse Gulam, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And it is my honor to introduce you to our next event with Sophie Oxanen and Edouard Louis, entitled Who is Killing Us? Literature and the unveiling of power. And power is a central work to the work of both Oxanen and Louis. Both in their literary work and in their political engagements, they explore power imbalances between minority and majority, between the elites and the working class, Between colonizer and colonized? Between men and women? Between parents and children? How can literature expose power imbalances and power abuses? And what does it mean to be a political writer? Sophie Oxon is a playwright, an essayist, and the author of a number of critically acclaimed and award-winning novels. Her latest novel, Dog Park, is partly set in Ukraine and he has been a vocal supporter of Ukraine following Russia's invasion. Edouard Louis fuses the personal and the political in his critically acclaimed books. He has also been active both in the Yellow Vests movement and in the movement Justins for Adama, among other political movements. And among his latest publications in Norwegian is a transcript of his conversation with director Ken Loach about politics and art. And to moderate this conversation tonight, we're lucky to have with us Anne Farsatås, writer, critic, and cultural editor of Brother. So please give them all a warm welcome.
0: Thank you, Ossi. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here, Edvard and Sophie, and thank you to everyone who came here tonight. So, we're going to unveil power here on the course of this conversation. Uh, But before we do that, let's start with the term that Osil mentioned, uh, a political writer. What is it to be a political writer? Uh, Is that... Of course, you're obviously political writers, but is that a category that you identify yourself with? And what is being a political writer to both of you? Can we just start there?
2: (laughs) We are being so polite. Yeah, very polite. But okay, I'll I'll, I'll start. Uh, I I think uh, for me, uh, it's it's, uh, obvious that every single word is political. I mean, the choice we make about the words, what kind of words we use, they're always political. Uh, so, in that way, I don't really understand authors who say they are not political. I, I don't really understand how they see words, um, for example. So, um, because also, words and language, they are tools of colonialization and the power. Language is a weapon. Um, so, or like Solzhenitsyn said, like, words can break cement, So, in that way, how can they not be political? I don't understand it. And also, when there are repressions, no matter what the time is, no matter what the continent or country or nation, then authors are always on the first row to be oppressed. So, if they wouldn't have any meaning, they wouldn't be uh, oppressed at all. Uh, So, in that way, uh, for me, literature is always political Even the most entertaining um, literature is political... ...because they are anyway uh, writing about people, about ideas, about the world. Uh, And uh, well, uh, I'm sure uh, Edward has has a better view on on France... ...but I have a feeling that in France it's kind of normal to be a committed author. Because in some... and, And you have a word for a committed author. But in Finland, again, there is no word. So in a way, if you... If you are somehow involved uh, with... um, if if you are if you are somehow think yourself as a political and author or um, committed author, then they, we don't we need a long sentence to explain ourselves, which is a bit weird. So in that way, I think it is actually easy to talk about being committed author in English. Or, for example, in France, because simply the vocabulary and the context is more clear, usually for the audience and also for the moderator. Yeah, I can say I, I, I don't know how you feel. Uh, and I'm sure that you have a lot to say about this. So I'm curious to. to. Is the French term,
0: <laughs> is it uh, engage? Yes. That you're looking for? Committed? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, No, it's true that,
3: um, you know, historically there was a a big movement around uh, literature and politics in France. And uh, we all know the names and the stories of uh, Jean Genet, uh, Frantz Fanon, uh, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, um, and and, and Albert Camus, and and a big movement uh, around this. And the thing is, historically... um, After this, uh, in France, in the 90s or in the early 2000s, we experienced a kind of counter-revolution against this, you know, like a counter-movement against Marguerite Duras, against Simone de Beauvoir, against stating that literature should not deal uh, with uh, social issues. And in fact, um, a kind of... Because there's a problem with with politics in literature is that... um, uh, often uh, it is judged uh, through uh, aesthetical uh, criteria. So, in fact, people would not. Directly target you for boi- being political, but there was this idea that the more political you were and the less aesthetical you were, and that there was a kind of uh, degradation uh, of the aesthetic of the book when the book was dealing uh, with uh, directly uh, political issues of violence of war and and so in a way for me the I mean, there are, there are many answers I could try to give or I could try to, to formulate. But maybe for me, the, the most uh, political act uh, in, in, in my writing uh, and the most political thing I can try to do in literature um, is to question those invisible criterias. Uh, of literature that are in fact hidden politics. You know, uh, in my life I met so many people who were uh, revolutionaries uh, in favor of the biggest political, the most radical um, revolution when it came to the political field. But then in literature they would reproduce the most uh, uh, old-fashioned or the most um, um, established. Uh, rules uh, of literature, and when I started to write, and and maybe now more than than before, I was trying to 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 see all these this, th- those elements, and this is what I tried to say in the in the book about my mother, where there is a little. Manifesto in the beginning of the book about literature, in which I say that, for example, when I started to to to, to write books, people would tell me that uh, a book should not be too explicit. You know mm-hmm. that uh, the best critique you can have in a paper was uh, everything is suggested. It's su- you know?
0: subtle. It's very subtle.
3: Yes. Yes, and suddenly there was a kind of uh, a uh, aesthetical value to silence. So the least you say, the more you suggest, and the more there is beauty without even uh, challenging the idea of what is beauty or the definition of beauty or without, without looking at the social construct of the definition of beauty. So I tried to kind of break this, you know, or people would tell me, uh, oh, what is good about a book is that uh, it's uh, without pathos, you know. I remember my the, the, the person at my publishing house would call uh, some people and say, oh, Edward's book is nice because it's without pathos. Mm. And I was screaming, but yes, it is full of pathos. Mm. Um, And and in fact, there was like, as as with explanation, there was suddenly a kind of aesthetical value to the lack of emotion. And my view was that I met in my life some lives that would make you cry, like the life of my brother or a big part of the life of my mother. And if I don't make a book that makes you cry, like a Greek tragedy would try to do, uh, then I, I hide those lives. I make them invisible. Uh, So so this is maybe a kind of uh, new definition of a political literature that we could give. Not only a literature that uh, is politicized with the outside world and go in the street, but also a literature who would reproduce in literature the same revolutions that we are trying to accomplish uh, with the governments. in the An aesthetic
0: revolution then against these ideas of subtlety, of... uh
3: Yes, yeah. yes. When you when you look at uh, Greek tragedy, is uh, it's uh, uh, full of uh, explanation. It's full of politics. It's full of explicit. It's full of pathos. It's full of tears. So we can also ask ourselves what historically happened to literature for so many people uh, thinking that literature should be everything. But it there is a kind of a, there is a kind of history of the of the robbery. From the dominant class to that form, there is. I finish with this. I don't want to talk too much, but there is this <laughs> very beautiful idea of, of of Jean-Paul Sartre. When one day someone was asking Sartre, uh, what I, "Why is theater so bourgeois? Um, why is the bourgeoisie going to the theater? What is the dominant class going to the theater?" and Sartre was saying, "But it's not bourgeois. The bourgeoisie stole it." at some point, because if you look at Greek tragedies, if you look at Shakespearean tragedies, they were popular shows. They were shows where people were going, where like the masses would go, you know? And so it's not the story of a form we are doing. It's the history of a robbery and what happened in this in this theft. And we cannot say that uh, uh, Shakespeare or Sophocles were not exigent in terms of literature, you know? It's quite the opposite. And still it was something different. So this is maybe a, a political aspect is to make this history of robbery.
2: Yeah, and I, I would like to comment uh, because I had this exactly the same um, same uh, thoughts in my head when I wrote my novel, Baby Chain, about panic disorder. And. Um, <sighs> I, well, I, I've written about mental disorders before as well, but to my surprise, even though uh, panic disorder is actually a very common disorder, um, it wasn't that research as I was expecting. Uh, but actually, <laughs> what I what led me to to write about panic disorder as a mental disorder. In a normal format, was the fact that I understood that there are not that many novels about panic disorder as a mental disorder. There are books about um, that can be uh, interpreted as books about panic disorder, like um, a person can be uh, locked in a room and doesn't ever leave the room. But there is no explanation for that. Uh, So it's considered like symbol for all sorts of things. But not directly about panic disorder as a mental disorder. And that was uh, probably because it is considered maybe banal or something that should be like dealt with understatement technique or maybe on a symbolic level. But then I, I was wondering why? Mm-hmm. Why? I mean is it like uh, what is the reason that we couldn't you know, use the medical terms or definitions for a mental disorder that actually exists in this world why do we have to have a symbolic story about someone who is locked in a room or somehow is not communicating with people or is not able to see people sure there might be more metaphorical levels for that but why we cannot simply talk about directly about the uh, panic disorder.
0: Yeah, that there is this aesthetic idea that if you mention the word or the diagnosis or the subject matter, then th- that is not aesthetic. That is not artistic yes. in a way.
3: And it is quite authoritarian because uh, uh, I mean I'm in favor of both. <laughs> I mean I think that of course it would be stupid that to say that there are no also an aesthetical value to the process of uh, hiding things sometimes or suggesting things. Uh, sometimes it's what we love when we read poetry, for example, or anything. And uh, so I I always wonder why, I don't know if you had this experience, but the people who, who defend the most um, traditionally formalist vision of literature are always leading a war against people who defend a more apparently political literature. When in fact, on the other side, you find people who appreciate each other. And I remember when I did this little book of conversation with Ken Loach, uh, who is, you know, as you know, working about working class people, about poverty. Um, And someone asked him um, what art should, should be. And Ken Lodge said, I would never say what art should be or art would be dead, you know? And so many people would have expected Ken Lodge to say it has to be political, it has to do the revolution, it has to do... And Ken Lodge was saying, this is what I do and I want more people to do it. But I don't say that it's uh, the definition of art. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you also experienced the kind of... uh, inequality in the kind of of, of treatment of what literature should be and what what does it say about the literary field and how it works?
2: Um, Yeah, I I think uh, also because probably if you are considered like a political author or committed author, then some people also think that it kind of takes away uh, somehow you being a proper artist, that you are on a mission. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know... I don't think authors you know, choose their the subject like that, not at, not at all. And at the same time, sometimes, you know, if you think that there's something that I think that actually has political meaning, then in the end, uh, it t- might turn out that the audience or the readers don't think it like that at all. For example, when <coughs> I wrote my first book, Stalin's Cows, uh, well, in Finnish language, we have that specialty that we don't have a gender. So that means that you can write a characters who might be in a relationship with a person whose gender you don't know. So actually, and that is how I wrote Stalin's cows. So in a way, that reader is actually choosing the gender for the uh, protagonist p- uh, partners, mm-hmm. and in Finland, nobody noticed that. <laughs> I mean, I really had paid attention that, you know, names were gender neutral, that there were no, like, you know, uh, anything that would say that, are oh, this is male or female. Nobody noticed that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was thinking that this is actually, this is, you know, political to write in a way that, you know, you are actually choosing the gender for the protagonist. That is, you know, an active uh, reading, actually. And nobody noticed that.
0: <laughs> nobody noticed it. No nobody critics,
2: noticed that. No? Nobody noticed that. And it was like, you know, okay, there is, yeah, that's, I had an intention and look what happened. You know, no, nobody saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and then again, of course, at the time, because for the first of all, I didn't know that I'm going to have translations. I mean, nobody, nobody, if you're writing in Finnish, nobody's expecting uh, <laughs> to be translated <laughs> any language. So when I started to get translations, then I got started to get the questions from, uh, uh, from the translators. Like, you know, I had to make a, the decision about the gender <laughs> of the people I was supposed to be. They were gender neutral. Uh, but, you know, in most languages you have to... So and they are gendered. They are gendered, yes. So um, so then I, then I said, I don't want to make that because my, my intention was not to have the gender. And in the end, then the, in translations, there is a gender because... It was considered like this is uh, this is uh, better. So in that way, this is how you know my my I, I did have an intention, and look what happens to authors' intentions. you know it, <laughs> it always doesn't turn out in a way that you are expecting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but is there anything about literature and power? Is there anything in specific that literature can do to unveil power that is more difficult in other? art forms or other expressions? Why is literature a good vehicle to look at power in society? Or is it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Um, Yes, I I often have the impression that literature is doing what the political field uh, should do but is not doing. Um, And uh, in a way, um, for me, politics, the political field in the most restrained uh, definition, um, was always um, uh, a place of, uh, of, of judgment, of punishment, of uh, um, responsabilization Whereas the literary field is, for me, the, like there is nothing more opposite to a court than a book of literature, a good book of literature, in which you understand that any characters, any acts, any act that someone is performing is linked to a bigger history, uh, is linked to social structures, is linked to situation. And in fact, literature is, for me, providing a kind of uh, art of causes that provides the causes for a character. Even when you when you read Proust then you have like those... Awful characters, some, some of them are homophobic or anti Semitic, and, the, and then Proust builds this whole world and this whole society in which you understand the misery of each one and the shame of each one and the milieu where they come from and how it affects the way they, they talk. And um, this is what literature uh, uh, for me should do and is doing more uh, specifically. It's just this uh, suspension uh from the from the idea of uh yes, from the idea of, of 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 judgment at least towards the people who suffer, you know like there is a big tradition of understanding If the uh, uh, uh William Faulkner light like in August you have someone killing someone else in the beginning of the book, and then Faulkner builds a whole history of joe christmas this this character and um this is not what is going on in the Political field where, um, in the opposite, we are always condemning the the, 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 the dominated and we always forgive the dominant. Mm. So, in terms of unveiling of power, how can literature do the opposite? Because just one funny anecdote: the thing is, and but not that funny because it says a lot of things. When I published, is uh, the end of Eddie or History of Violence dealing with homophobia or racism in the working class? of my childhood, and I was saying I wrote those books to understand, because for me this is the meaning of literature, to create the causes, to recreate the causes, and to understand. I had many people who were telling me, oh, but you cannot understand. You cannot understand uh, homophobia. You cannot understand masculine domination. You don't have the right to do it. People are responsible if they do it. It's their own will. And then when I published Who Killed My Father, which was about the violence of the government toward the working class, when they cut welfare, when they take money from poor people, when they close their hospitals and everything, the same people, the same journalists with the same names were telling me, oh, no, you cannot blame them. It's a whole system. It's much more complicated. (laughs) You know, they are not responsible. It's the history of the state. It's the history of the uh, institutions. And then I realized there was a kind of an unequal uh, uh, distribution of sociological understanding. And that the dominant were using literature to understand the dominant, uh, but never the dominated. And that the dominated were always responsible and the dominant were never responsible. So how can we use literature in in order to kind of break that and turn that away? Uh, It is, I think.
0: Yes, because in uh, Who Killed My Father, you kind of put the politicians on trial. Mm
3: -hmm. Yes, because they they are always being uh, excused. Like there is this kind of uh, uh, lie uh, haunting the political field, which pretends that the more power you have, the less power you have. But it is not true. This is this this speech, this idea, this notion that is circulating everywhere, even in TV shows, in ev- like is is a way of is a technology in order to make power function. As it as it is functioning, and literature can subvert this, I guess.
2: Um, def- definitely. Um, that I, I don't know what is the most common phrase for French politi- uh, politicians to <laughs> to uh, to um, be excused. In in Finland, they say always that oh, we didn't know, we <laughs> didn't know, uh, or that everybody else was thinking in the same way. Mm, not necessarily <laughs> those are the most common uh, phrases um, phrases for for Finnish politicians i i think my um very strong belief in in uh, in literature's um, revolutionary uh importance comes also because i'm i'm Estonian from my mother's side um and when you think about why actually all Baltic states uh, survived uh, double occupations, then it was definitely through their culture and through their language uh, and through their literature. Yes, uh, the
0: language and literature was never uh, it completely was,
2: dominated. Uh, yeah, no, even though, you know, um, Ru- Russian language was the, uh, definitely, I mean... Uh, you know that there are so many ways to to um, to um, oppress language. Uh, Ukrainian language was much, m- much more oppressed than in Baltic states. Baltic languages, uh, for example, Stalin even removed or banned Ukrainian alphabet. Just, you know, to <laughs> to make it non-existent more. Um, but in in Baltic States, that didn't uh, happen. But uh, there was always pa- enough paper for Lenin's work. There was always enough paper for uh, Russian literature. There was never enough paper for... <laughs> so in that way, you know, it was actually, you had to... Um, you had really to fight to get the Estonian uh, popular copies. You had to fight for them. You had to use your connections. Uh, you really had to. Uh, to uh, it, it wasn't that easy. If there was a popular uh, Estonian a book in Estonia, you really, you really had to need to work to get that. Um, so in in that way, and also, for example. Uh, Uh, extremely popular, um, of course, because everything was censored. So in that way, you couldn't write directly. So in that way, Estonians learned to write between the lines. And because censors are never very clever people... Uh, not very able to read between the lines so sometimes surprisingly you know a strong uh, messages got through of course when we think about from today's point of view then we might not even think that they are revolutionary texts but but you know at the time when people had the ability to read between the lines and what it meant then they were actually revolutionary and that kept also alive the spirit uh spirit to to uh long for freedom and long for the for the regaining the independency. i mean that was that that's something that kept it alive so in that way um I mean, th- if you think about the history of, of, of all these countries, then it's, it's a wonder that, that the languages still exist, actually, because there's always been someone, there's been always been a dominant culture uh, and a dominant literature and, and so on, but still these languages exist because they've had a strong literary tradition.
0: Yeah. So who kills us is the headline for this uh, event. And I was perhaps thinking also, how do they kill us? Uh, Reading all of your books, uh, I think both of you magnificently in so many crucial ways shows in your writing that you don't need a gun to kill someone, Uh, that there are so many other ways to kill someone. Uh, And, for example, in Purge, uh, your novel, Sophie, we see the way that rape and sexual violence is used in war and how it divides people against each other. Uh, The main character there, when she is a victim of of rape, she does not want to look other rape victims in the eyes. So people are divided against each other. Instead of standing together, uh, the victims are divided. And in your work, of course, you write about sexual violence. Violence as well, Edouard. But you also write about how you know uh, the poor people then fight with the ones who have perhaps a little bit more instead of fighting power over there. Mm. Um, is this something that's important to both of you? Showing this, how how power
2: structures also divide uh, people. Mm. Uh, yes, defi- definitely. I think. Um when I'm asked what what I write about, I'm always saying that I write about power and that's that's the main theme in in my work about power structures uh, power structures on on different levels and sometimes even the most everyday things might be you know something that you can analyze power structure through that. I think it was uh, it was it was Harold Pinter who said that the smallest unit to, to investigate power is the relationship.
0: Mm.
3: No, it's true. I mean, it's also what I what I love uh, in the book of Sophie uh, Levage de Stalin, or, or Pius that you were mentioning is that um, those people are are suffering from extreme form of violence, uh, political violence, structural violence. Um, and many people in Sophie's books are not good people. Yeah. <laughs> not, uh, and uh, and this is this is to me like really the most important thing to understand uh, today that um, when violence crushes people, violence turns many people into servants of violence. And that's why in this lecture about my brother, I was criticizing this new mainstream language of politics, which is articulated to love and to sentiments, saying uh, people are beautiful, women are beautiful, gay people are fabulous, um, which prevents you from understanding that people who suffer from this violence will in many occasions reconduct it. Uh, on other people, and that violence is something that cross bodies like an electric current, uh, which is something you can see in the books of Toni Morrison, for example. In Beloved, the, the mother is killing her child because she's in this kind of a, a colonialist, uh, colonial system uh, where they want to take her uh, to be a slave with the, with the daughter, and she's so afraid that the daughter will become a slave also that she kills her, which is a violent act. But suddenly, this violent act is dictated by this kind of violence that comes before. And there is this wonderful monologue in Beloved where the sister of the murdered girl says, Something crossed my mother, but I don't know what it is. I don't know where it came from. One day it entered her body, she killed my sister. And then it left, and I'm so scared that it will come back again, and that these things that opened the door, entered the body of my mother, will kill me again. And this is this kind of uh, uh, dialectic of violence that we should understand. Otherwise, we make so so much suffering uh, invisible. You know, there was there was like there was a political tragedy happening a few uh, maybe it was two years ago in France, where. Um, A guy called Iles Alouan, who is a a Muslim Arabic uh, guy uh, living in France, in in the suburbs of France, uh, started to record videos from... The assaults he was experiencing every day in the suburbs of Paris, like people uh, punching him, uh, throwing him on the floor, five guys uh, kicking him with the f- with the foot and uh, with their feet, spitting on him, harassing him every day. And one day, he decided to record that and to show it to the media. And suddenly, what happened? The thing is that most of the progressives and the left-wing people didn't want to address those issues. <laughs> They didn't want to talk about it because they were afraid that it would reproduce the violence against people in the suburbs, against working class people, against poor people. And with this idea that if you stand for people, you have to pretend that people are good or that, and without understanding the fact that you can both criticize Islamophobia and also criticize the fact that in working class milieu, like the one in which I grew up, which was the opposite uh, of Muslim, or in some neighborhoods um, uh, where working-class people are living in very precarious conditions, those phenomena are happening. And what happened? the left didn't want to talk about it, and then the right-wing people took it, and they welcomed that guy. And they say they do it because they are Muslim. They do it because they are working class. They do it because they are violent. And then it was nourishing the right. And the left was unable to articulate a discourse that would understand that those people who were beating him were both suffering but making him suffer and that he deserved a place in the political space. And the left had no right to tell him what you say is lying. This guy was being kicked every day. Bad guys, and this is what I experienced when I wrote uh, like less violent. But when I wrote uh, the end of Eddie, people, some people, didn't want to listen to me because I was talking about this homophobia in precarious milieus, in poor milieus, and people were telling me, "You lie! It cannot be true." Those people, we cannot say bad things about those people who are already suffering so much. So, what it is to build a literature that would understand this flow of violence? This is also what I see. In, uh, in, in in Sophie's books, and uh, if you don't do it, then you leave it to this uh, politics of punishment, to this politics of violence, to this uh, politics of repression, and this is this is what you were suggesting. And I think we are only not only at the beginning of it, but we are at a very difficult moment to it, precisely because of the of the new mainstream. Uh, a movement and its inability to take a look at the complexion uh, of everything. Yes, you can be a man and be mid- uh, gay man and be misogynistic. You can be a Muslim person and very violently homophobic. You can be a woman and be homophobic. And uh, if you, if if the condition of politics becomes to never say. Complex things like this, uh, then we are lost, and we will be the one responsible for the surge of the right and the far right because they will address those same issues but with the stupid, violent, classist, racist, and idiotic language.
0: Sophie, do we need to separate love and politics, as Edward says?
2: Edward is very much, um, uh, I'm I'm 100% with him. um, And what also, uh, what, what I think is that the, what makes the literature a great place is to explore the world and and give words to to many things is is that you can have complex characters, um, and. Um, and also, I, for me, personally, it's also an important way to try to understand people who are very much different from myself. Because, um, um, for for example... Um, well, I, I've always, before I, I said that I, I never want to write a novel about a writer because it's it's so lazy. that It sounds like <laughs> that you don't want to do your research. <laughs> You're just writing about something you know. Uh, but then in When the dust disappeared, I wrote about um, a so-called historian or, or a so-called uh, author who is writing history books according to the recommendations of KGB. So he's using his writing as as a tool for the uh, security organs. And uh, and that was kind of important work for me because it, it would... I, I wanted to, in a way, understand... I, I have no idea what kind of author I'd be if I not live in a democracy. What kind of it of course it would be lovely to say that, of course I would be the resistant one, of course, I would be the dissident, but how can I know actually mm. how can i know i can i don't know that I would love to think myself, my uh, image of myself is that definitely I would be that dissident, you know, ready or to go to the prison, <laughs> yes, of course, I would be that person. And and that's what, you know, quite often when people think about, for example, Hitler's Germany, then, then of course, you, you see yourself as a person who is opposing the regime. But the fact is, most people are not like that, unfortunately. I mean, now when we think about Russia, then actually we should have supported the opposition decades ago. West didn't do that, and now we are in, the, in this situation. So, in a way that um, it is... Uh, It is important to understand the. um, um, For me personally, this is my personal. As I was saying, that author's intentions that just you know nobody notices. But for me, it's also important that literature is an important tool to try to investigate uh, what kind of humans, human beings are.
0: Yeah, and obviously in your novels, uh, many of your protagonists are not heroes or No,
2: no, no, no. Heroes are I I leave them for Hollywood.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and as you said, this is not just about what kind of a person you are, because that that would Suggest that there are certain types of persons in the world, but as your books so brilliantly show, uh, there are reasons why people do things in Purge. Uh, Alida, how many choices does she have? Uh, she gives up her sister and her niece, uh, but she does that because she feels she doesn't have all that many options to live within mm. the oppressive society that she lives in.
2: And and also in, in literature we can have characters who like in your in your work you have characters who are you know they are bullied and, and tormented and, and uh, meet violence at home and yet at the same time they love their parents. Which is this is very important to have that kind of characters in literature because actually there are also many people who are in that kind of situation. And that is that's not something that you know, people are telling in interviews that, okay, my husband is beating me, but I'm staying uh, with him. I mean, that is not, that is not the heroic survival story. Mm-hmm. Nobody is saying that. And, and that, or that nobody is saying that uh, I uh, love my father, but I mean, mm-hmm. he uh, used to beat me like every other day. I mean that's not the story you tell at Father's Day interviews, simply, <laughs> and yet at the te- at the same time, that is the situation where many people are actually living, so in that way, I think literature can also um or it's not considered like you know politically correct to say that aloud. it is then you'll get to say, why didn't you leave? you know, even though things are much more complex complicated than that. so literature can also offer identity stories. Uh, to, uh, to 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 readers, but also to uh, to those who are not personally involved to 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 these kind of situations. But in a way, to help them to understand that, the, in a way, try to understand the situation people are actually living. Yeah, and your latest
0: novel in origin, at least, is uh, "Dog Park." Uh, the, the it starts with uh, two women, uh, two Ukrainian women, sick in, sitting in a park in Helsinki, and they are looking at uh, a family, very happy family there, uh, but then. It, we don't understand why are they looking at these children. But after a while, we understand that these two women, they have been involved in the uh, donor egg industry and surrogacy industry in the Ukraine, and that they have a very complicated history together where they are not just victims of this industry, but have also uh, worked within this industry because maybe there aren't any other options for them, for these women. Uh, Would you like to comment a little bit about that story? It struck me as a very strong story, reading it now. Um, When the war started in... Ukraine in February, I remember seeing these uh, Norwegian couples on television saying that they were very sad because now they couldn't get their surrogacy children uh, from the Ukraine and then reading your novel, that's that's the story that we don't see about what's going no, on no, there. there.
2: Yes, this is, uh, I mean, fertility tourism is extremely complicated uh, issue um, in, in so many ways, uh, but it is definitely something we should talk more because uh, we don't really have international mutual understanding uh, of the business um, and it doesn't really because the um, fertility clinics are always um, owned by people who's uh, who's thinking about the interests of the customer so it's the customers who are you know ruling and if you you um, If you are going to be the customer of a fertility industry, then it is psychologically understandable that you are not actually thinking about the complicated system behind it, and there's a huge grey market. And as we have now so many displaced people and... and, uh, and uh, refugees uh, from Ukraine, then I can imagine that you know those displaced people and uh, and uh, refugees, they are definitely at the risk of not only becoming the victims of, of uh, human trade in general, but also uh, it might be for them um, um, a one way of getting you know money to survive simply. Because, I mean, the reason why fertility business in Ukraine was before war, a huge thing. And I can imagine that those businessmen who are having this luxury in business, I mean, they don't stop. They probably are just, you know, uh, active now outside uh, Ukraine. Uh, And the donors and surrogate mothers travel because there's a traveling program as well. So why it's so big is that it is uh, definitely the cheapest place to get a white baby.
0: Exactly. And you show this very well in your book, where you also show that uh, the, the story that's sold to the customers is so important because the story being sold cannot be of these bodies being excavated for eggs, which is what's happening there. They're selling their eggs, but they have to have a, a positive story, a positive spin. I'd like to do this because my cousin is infertile and I li- I'd love to help people other places. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. it has to be uh, framed in, in a way that is... Uh, appealing to uh, a Western customer. And it was actually, uh, I was was sometimes very surprised about how the stories were framed because uh, sometimes they are very colonial. They are very colonial in a way that Ukraine is presented as this authentic, more authentic uh, country than, you know, where even though there's so much pollution, I mean, in reality, but at the same time it is, and it's about poverty uh, that's why people are growing their own c- cucumbers and tomatoes. Uh, it's about the poverty uh, and and because its the, uh, average income is very low, but it's sold to the western of country. Also, uh, the idea is that these are much more healthier and authentic uh, genes. X that is women, because they are eating more. The pure food. I mean, they are growing their own vegetables. Okay, reality, <laughs> the poverty, but it is told as a story of being healthy bodies. Yes, in health, healthy nature. Yeah, something very genuine. That going back to those primal times or the times before industrialization. I was thinking, okay, you forgot the Chernobyl. But in a way that, you know, see, so in that way that the story is sold and framed in in a way, just like actually you could hear the same kind of phrases that when, when we think about how the Western culture has colonised and exploited, for example, black women, then actually the phrasing and framing is very similar. Mm. And uh,
0: another reason that I want to get into this story is uh, these seem to be uh, based on reality. You've done a lot of research for this novel.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. For uh, all your novels. Uh, yeah, but I mean, this was definitely uh, something I didn't know much much before. Uh, so in that way, I was I was quite struck uh, about many things. Uh, and um, as I said so the, the, about this framing. Uh, and at the same time, it's I mean there's so much bullshit in in, in this framing because, uh, and and that the Western customers buy that they want they are buying the story actually that is what they are buying, uh, and um, for example the 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 uh, I mean the better the education the better the hobbies you have the better the, the more valuable your XR and at the same time i mean ukraine is was before the revolution uh, of dignity it was the country where you know you can buy whatever document you want for example the president had bought bought his uh, his uh, master's degree, uh, or actually all politicians had. I mean, they didn't have a real education. They just, you know, bought papers showing that, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm a doctor of something. So, uh, in, and you could buy, you know, and it's actually still in Russia. It's, you know, it's easier actually to buy your driver's license than, than you know, to actually, you know, go to driving schools. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they have the accidents? That's a good question. But in a way that, so uh, you can buy whatever document, and simply because the bureaucracy was so difficult. So in that way, people were. I mean, sometimes and quite often, everyday life is was uh, impossible if you are not involved with corruption. Simply, I mean, you don't you don't manage to you know get a visa unless you are for example, uh, forging your bank account, simply. For example, I mean, it's not, uh, which sounds insane, but I mean, that was also part of the business because the uh, all the forged documents are, you know, it's a business for some, livelihood for somebody. So anyway, so you can actually buy on paper the life you want or you want to sell. And at the same time, these Western customers are buying the story of the, genuine an yeah. uh, no, authentic life with so the, a beautiful background yeah yeah and
0: so the the people in your novel are victims uh, and but also Not heroes. No, because they are involved with the business. With the whole uh, business side and the corruption side. But what I also want to talk about a little bit is materials, the materials that you use. We've understood now that both of you, you know, you describe how power uh, divides instead of unifying and how it works on the body. But you have very different approaches. Sophie, you write fiction and you use a lot of research, uh, political, historical research. And Edouard, you, of course, you use literature, sociology, theory, but the materials are from your own experiences and from your family primarily. Uh, why did you choose that? And do you think you could have made other choices? Uh,
3: no, I, I think that... Um um, memory is my field of research. Um and it's where I, I I take things. Um I don't I don't really have the impression that um I am free. I mean I don't wake up thinking, oh I will write autobiography or I will write fiction. Uh I have the feeling that I cannot write fiction, that if I do it I'm I don't connect to it. I'm bored. What I do is not good. Or, um, and in the autobiographical form, I find a, I find a, I find a sense and a, a kind of feeling of emergency that is probably linked to my, uh, to my childhood. You know, there is this. Um, there is this beautiful scene that I love. From I'm sorry to quote Proust again. It's, <laughs>
2: it's
3: quite, quite <laughs> cultural. <laughs> uh, I think it was his b- the birthday of uh, uh, like a few days ago. Uh, um, <laughs> so uh, so, so there, there there is one there is one thing in there is one scene I think uh, in uh, in the in the second volume of, of La recherche, where uh, the narrator of of Marcel Proust uh, is reading is reading a book. And um, the the, the maid, the the cleaning woman, the the person who is there to take care of them, Françoise, um, who is a very working class woman, she's there and she takes care of the rich family. And she asks the narrator uh, if the book he's reading uh, is based on a true story or not. And when Françoise says that to the narrator, uh, the narrator who is like so privileged and so bourgeois, despises Françoise so much. And he says, you know, she c- cannot understand the power of imagination and of creation. And she's just so attached to reality. And therefore, she's inferior. And I'm, when I read that scene, I felt on the side of Françoise, not on the side of the, of, of the narrator, as if I was, in a way, writing a literature from, for cleaning women. But I prefer to write for cleaning women than for the bourgeoisie. <laughs> and the thing is, uh, so, which, of course, doesn't uh, stop me from uh, reading or getting inspired by fiction like I do with Sophie or with uh, Toni Morrison or with Alan Olinger, who will be here uh, this week, and so many others, M- Maza Mengist. Uh, uh, um, but when I, I do it, i feel this kind of uh, of of feeling of emergency to 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 tell something about it to to testify about it because in a way also i like to think that as in the working class milieu of my childhood uh, uh, reality was our category of belonging you know as if like your category of belonging you can identify i don't know as uh, gay as woman or as Left wing, was avant garde jazz musician. Uh, our category was reality. This was our life. Like, am I going to eat tonight? Am I going to pay for my rent tomorrow? We were like stuck in the present, and stuck in reality. And in a way, I think there is a link between this and this question of Françoise in Prose asking the narrator, is it true? Because she wants to be recognized. And reality is what makes her feeling recognized, in the same way that when you are gay and you live a book of Alan Hollinger's, it changes your life because you feel you exist, you feel you are here, you feel recognized. And... Um, and you know that you were talking about Hollywood. Also, the, the the whole Hollywood system understood it when they do like a, a mass media movie, like a main big mainstream movie. They always write like based on a true story, and it's written bigger than the title of the movie, even like <laughs> uh, because they know that they will get the masses with this argument. And uh, in a way, this is also my belonging, and uh, I'm not free from this. And also in a way, I am. I am happy not to be free from this because um because of the kind of um uh, irritation that autobiography is creating uh in in some people, you know, I heard so many people telling me, you know, nowadays everybody wants to write about herself, everybody wants to write about himself. It's like a, like narcissistic. a narcissistic, yeah. narcissistic. It's like lit. It's like a selfie, permanent selfie civilization or something like this. Um, and 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 the funny thing is that um, if you look structurally and institutionally even, if you do like a, a, let's say, like a Pierre Bourdieu analysis of the distribution between fiction and autobiography, you will realize that among the ten last Goncourt Prize or the ten last Nobel Prize or the ten last, we had a, a beautiful exception this year with Annie Erno, but autobiography is almost uh, invisible, is almost absent. In France, every time like there are 600 books published, they are like I don't know, 40 or 30 of autobiography. But the thing is, autobiography is making people panic so much that there's the impression it's everywhere, you know? Like like racist or transphobic people, when they see one black person and one people changing gender, they say, oh, it's everywhere. We are not, yeah. you know, everybody wants to change the gender. Everybody, like, uh, <laughs> in my childhood, we would see, my father would see one black person on TV, would say, oh, we are not at home, you know? And, like, he yeah. would be surrounded by 100% white people, you know? And so there is a, a, a profound link between paranoia and subversion, and the paranoia that, that subversion is creating. And sometimes I even heard, like, there was this this lecture, this Nobel Prize lecture from Olga Tokarsuk, which is a writer I admire, and she's clever, but even her, she was saying, every day... Like, everybody wants to talk about themselves. Mm. And I really ask a sociologist to make a study, and we will see that it's it's not the case. So what, why are people so afraid of autobiography? Once again, most politi- most autobiographical writers will not say, oh, they write fiction, it's bad, no. I, I mean, most autobiographical writers I know, uh, they read fiction, they get nourished, I- inspired by fiction. Um, w- w- why does autobiography scare people? Uh, I kind of like it, and I think there is something that is still to be created <laughs> within this this uh, part of the literary field and we are just at the beginning of that history, Mm. I think.
0: Sounds like what you're saying is you could have a sociological, cultural sociological study of this because on the one side, based on a true story, is the most commercial of everything. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, not too true or uh, not too much your life uh, Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, or it's banal if it's just a one-to-one depiction of reality. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually interesting what what, what you said um, because I sometimes I think I made a mistake when I said that I like writing autofiction. Uh, I said that in um, when my first novel Stalin's Cows* came out in in Finland, and at the time, actually, uh, autofiction was not known as a word to cultural journalists in Finland. Um, Which was weird because, I mean, we we actually do have Finnish authors who have written autofiction. And uh, Marta Tikkanen, known also in in Norway, for example. I mean, she has been popular, but but, but the word wasn't in a way recognized. Mm. Um, And then in a few years... Certainly, the autofiction as a word was everywhere, and uh, so certainly it became like uh, a word. Or biofiction and autofiction and true crime were like you know <laughs> all over the culture pages and culture section, and uh, at, at the same time, and and then. I understood that those definitions are not clear, not even to journalists, because no matter what I wrote, it was always considered autofiction. So even, you know, even Perch is considered in Finland sometimes, you know, autofiction, even though, you know, it is, I mean, autofiction... well, on the other hand, I just, you know, give up and uh, say that everything comes from my head. So in that way, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, if you are writing a historical novel that is not even, I mean, I wasn't born then. So uh, or, or it's focusing on, on decades uh, where you, you're not born. So in a way, where, where does the limit actually go? But in a way that I have a feeling that also that this true something has kind of made the whole definition... In a way that I don't understand what people are actually talking about. I you, you 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 probably meet even more the uh, the that I'm 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 confused sometimes that uh, what are we talking about when we talk about autofiction.
3: I mean, for me, autofiction is a very problematic uh, (laughs) category Uh, uh, because precisely it's it's a kind of uh, shameful autobiography who is still trying to give uh, proofs of its legitimacy to fiction. You know, why don't we say autobiography? Why don't we say... And how much it can save... uh, illusions and how much it can save, like the uh, the, the literary field uh, perceives that uh, its uh, dignity and uh, as what it is. So the, there is there is in the in the autobiographical process and how how political it can be a kind of 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 break free from the from the idea of autofiction which was even at some point in France a kind of new fashion and a new uh, a new idea that what people should do so this kind of um, yeah because you know the the thing is uh, when i when i talk about my books i have so many people asking me or I would rather say begging me, uh, but there is a little bit of fiction, right? <laughs> no idea, yeah. right? There are some things that you made, yeah. right?
0: Isn't there? And isn't there,
3: you know? <laughs> As if it was like a, a, a life jacket to help them not being confronted to what they are reading, you know? So if people make up stories, that's beautiful, that's called fiction, and we read it. And if I decide to don't make up stor- uh, stories, why should I say that I make up stories if it's not true? There is a kind of uh, the, uh, the, there is a kind of idea of uh, of, of the fiction that can also be a political tool and a political uh, technology that some people use in order to never be confronted to what they are uh, being confronted to. You know.
0: Because then, you can say, it's just a novel. Right? Yeah,
3: all this idea <laughs> all, all this idea of. Uh, 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 all, all this idea of subjectivity, you know, it's also one of the old ideas of literature: the idea that literature is about uh, subjective, is about one view, is about one, and then you can deal with anything: with war crime, with rape, with homophobia, with. And people will say, "Oh, it's a perception of the character, with a perception of the narrator." Exactly. And so I, I, wonder how many, uh, like, yes, tools of coarseness. Uh, the old-fashioned ideology of the literary field carries with itself and how much we can subvert it uh, with the idea of autobiography, with the idea of objectivity, which can go along with fiction. Emile Zola was saying that he was doing uh, objective uh, literature. It's a term that he was using. Um, uh, And how can can we use that in order to deconstruct uh, everything that the literature uh, doesn't allow us and and this is what uh, autobiography uh, in, is is doing in my sense and this is um, against this idea of Autofiction. Frankly, I prefer fiction than autofiction. Autofiction sounds awful to me. It's like uh, someone who says I'm neither left wing nor right wing, you know? <laughs> uh, it's just <laughs> in the middle of, of nowhere. And um, the radicalities that uh, autobiography is providing uh, is about something else. And this is really a more uh, clearly a persecuted form because we always ask autobiographical writers, when are you going to write fiction? We never ask a fiction writer, when are you going to write autobiography?
0: Autobiography. (laughs) Uh,
3: Unless we want the little gossips and everything, but not in general. And so there is like an invisible hierarchy of what is is, um, superior and what is inferior. And we are just at the beginning of the history of autobiography, I think.
0: I think that's a good way to end it because I see that we have used our hour. Uh, you've taken off the life jacket of <laughs> literature. Then, um, and I can't believe uh, that people would call your novels autofiction. Uh, that sounds really strange. Uh, and that these journalists need to read up a little bit. <laughs> but Thanks. thank you no so chance. much, thank Sophie you. and Edouard.
3: Thank you. <laughs> thank you.